Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy chapter 1 as we read verses 3 through 7. As a reminder, this is Paul writing to young Timothy, uh, an elder in the church, a pastor in the church. This letter is his instruction to him. Beginning in verse 3, hear now the word of God. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray and ask him to do that. Heavenly Father, would you reveal to us today... Something of the goal that you have for us. That we would be people who embrace the truth, who seek it in your own self-revelation. And that we would be driven in our pursuit of truth first by a love for you and then by a love of our neighbor. Help us today as we look to your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Back in 2010, Tom Nichols wrote a book that really made an impact on me. I don't know if any of you read it at the time or if you've even heard of it. It's a book called The Death of Expertise. And in that book, Tom Nichols talked about the cultural moment where we find ourselves. And this is 2017, not 2021, when he wrote it. Uh, I mean, it almost seems that people have begun to think that if someone is, is not an expert who has been trained in something, somehow that actually makes them more trustworthy. Um, Go to the internet for only 30 seconds and you will be surrounded by self-styled experts with no real knowledge or training in what they're talking about. What did they do? Well, they went to Wikipedia and they read an article on the subject for two minutes. uh, Or they went to Snopes and they think, well, I've done all the research on this that I need to do. Um... And now they're ready to go 10 rounds back and forth in the comment section on a Facebook post, right? We're going to solve the problems of the world here on this post, and everyone's going to see it. Um, Carl Truman says this. He says, the danger of the internet is this, where everyone has a right to speak, everyone ends up thinking they have a right to be heard. And when everyone in general thinks they have a right to be heard, then you end up with a situation where nobody in particular is listened to. Um, That was years ago that these were written, and it just keeps feeling more and more relevant. Um, I'm very fond of saying this, and you probably hear it as almost this like, where's he going to slip this into the sermon? Um, None of these things are new. None of this is new. Um, There is nothing new under the sun. Uh, Even Paul and Timothy knew what it was like to deal with so-called experts when it comes to the subject of religion in, in this case. Um, that's who he's really writing this letter to, really. He's, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is the recipient. Uh, but the occasion of the letter is these people. Um, Paul says that there are people who 
desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. See, the internet didn't invent this problem. Um, all it did was sort of democratize it and spread it and make it much more easy. And so the, you have this so-called death of expertise has actually been a very long time coming. And yet, of course, biblically speaking, there are those who are meant to be trained in these things, who, who are expected to be able to teach. And there are some who are not necessarily expected to be able to teach. And Paul sees Timothy this way. Uh, Paul gives some direction here for just such a person this morning in the text. In fact, that's why he wrote this letter to Timothy in the first place. This is a letter about how to address the errors and divisions that are created when these teachers without understanding open their mouth. Um, in these instructions, yeah, we learned something important that elders have been tasked with, but I also don't want you to think that Paul only has something for elders here. And I'm going to keep sounding this alarm continuously as we read through 1 Timothy because it would be very easy to dismiss everything that Paul says and say, ah, this is just for the elders. This is just for the elders. Um, I want you to know that what he tells Timothy absolutely pertains to every single one of us, every single one of us in the church. Um, we all need to listen to direction that leads us away from speculative theology if it is not drawn from the text of Scripture. We need to be encouraged to base what we know, base what we believe about God in what he has said about himself so that we're not constantly doing guesswork and we're just listening to people start off sentences with, I feel, I feel this, I feel that. What we need to be asking is constantly this question, what has God said? What has God said? And that's what Paul is, is nudging Timothy toward here. Um, and so let's look, let's look closely at what Paul is actually getting at this morning. I want to look at it under three headings, Timothy's ministry, Timothy's mission, and Timothy's motivation. All three of these things Paul gets at this morning in our passage. First, he explains Timothy's ministry in the first part of verse 3. Now, this isn't, of course, all that Timothy's ministry as an elder entails. Um, in this letter later on, Paul's going to tell a lot more of what's expected of Timothy. But, but he is saying what is important to him at this moment, what he really needs to be, uh, needs to be addressed in his, own, in his own life. He gives two commands to Timothy. He gives these two commands to Timothy to remain... And he gives a command for him to charge. So if you want to do a subpoint under the first two and you are taking notes, then the two subpoints are remain and charge. First, he urges Timothy to remain, right? Here is what he's saying. He's saying physically remain in Ephesus. The, the physical presence of Timothy is crucial to the further success of this church. If Paul had just preached in Ephesus... And then moved on, there would have been this vulnerability in this local church. Because it turns out that actually being physically present, actually being there, being in people's lives, uh, seeing that you are truly invested, that you're, you're truly giving everything that you have to these people, it matters. Right? Paul says, Timothy, it is not enough to have a remote ministry. It isn't enough to just write letters to these people every week. You actually need to be there. You need to see them. You need to be around each other. You need to be in each other's lives. 
if remote ministry was God's way, I guarantee you Paul would have had the most incredible remote ministry that was ever seen in the Mediterranean world. He would have just let Timothy move on and either Paul would have started a remote, sorry, uh, started a remote ministry or uh, Timothy would have started a remote ministry, all right? It would, be, it would have been a sermon mailing ministry where Timothy would have just written his, his sermons out and just mailed them all over the place. And people would just be getting ministered to by getting these sermons sent to them instead of needing to show up at this one place. You can imagine the Mediterranean world perhaps being capable of such a thing. It would be difficult. It would be expensive. But they could have done it. And it's, it's, if you, could, you could imagine the rationale that Paul would have used. You could imagine the rationale Timothy would have used. Hey, look, I'm putting all this work into one sermon. Just imagine if lots of people in lots of places heard this sermon. We could make that the whole ministry of what we do. And yet Paul says, no, you need to be physically there. It is not enough for me to be writing this letter to you. That's not enough ministry. That's not, that's more, that is not enough. That's not what people need. Um, I don't think I have to persuade you at this point that after 21 months of pandemic living, trying to do church from a distance is just not the same. I am not saying that I'm not glad that we have the capacity for when people need to stay home or when people are sick, that they can still hear the sermon and, and watch the service. I'm, I'm glad for that. But I don't think anybody who's even at home right now would say, oh, this is the exact same thing and I love it just equally. I think everybody understands that being physically together is something that is just, it's irreplaceable. You can't replace it. Um, being together, being taught together, praying together, visiting together, taking the Lord's Supper together, having conversations together. There is just no replacement. There's no analog that fills that gap. Now, it might fill the gap if the Christian faith was just about information transfer, if it was just about seeing somebody say something and then getting that information as if that's all that was that mattered in the Christian faith. But but everybody needs more than just a sermon each week. Everyone needs more than just to watch other people sing songs each week, right? And it, it, it does work for a while. It's sort of a, a good band-aid. But um, for years and years of the Christian life, is it meant to be lived that way? Life in Christ means sharing our whole selves interactively, uh, not just observing, not just passively receiving. Um, if it was possible... Paul would have brought Timothy with him. If you think about it, Paul and Timothy are in Ephesus. This church gets planted and Paul decides to move on. Paul would have taken Timothy with him if he thought that it would have been better, right? Because it would have doubled his help. Uh, it would have, Timothy would have, was an incredible encouragement. You could almost think about how Paul could rationalize taking him and leaving the elders in Ephesus by themselves, you could imagine just all the gears turning in Paul's head and saying, look, I'm on a mission. I'm going from place to place. I'm planning churches. I'm planning churches. We're going to see the gospel spread. I need to be working at my absolute best. I need to be working at my peak. I need to, to have help. And if I do that, you're going to see more churches planted. I could just imagine Paul thinking that. But then Paul evidently has this other thought, which is these people need a pastor who is here. They need elders who are here. Remote ministry is not going to work. We need physically people on the ground in each other's lives. So Paul tells Timothy, he says, remain. 
That's the first thing he tells him. He says, remain. This is one of the things he charges Timothy with. Remain because you are needed, Timothy. And so are we. We are all needed. We need each other. The second, Paul says, Timothy is supposed to charge people. He uses this verb charge here. Charge is a command. It's a more authoritative word than the word instruct. Now, there's some translations they say instruct, but then if you hunt down the word, you look at how it gets used. It's usually this very firm, uh, not a soft way of speaking to someone. When you instruct, you know, you, it's sort of passive in a sense. It's like you tell them the truth about something, but you're not impressing it upon them like you need to do this. Instead, it's much more of an indicative thing. This is what the world is like. This is what God is like. A command, though, a charge is like personally going to someone and saying, you, you, think about your life. Think about what you're doing. And that's what he does here. He's actually telling him that he needs to take this firm tack with some people. Some people need a gentle word. Some people um, are like the uh, Richard Sibbs wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. And in that book, he talked about how there are some people whose, whose hearts are so sensitive and whose souls are so sensitive. They're so bent down and weighed down by their sin and by their past that all it takes is one word from God and they just collapse into tears. They're just so broken by their past and they're so filled with shame and they haven't figured out how to reckon with the hurt that's in their lives. But then there are some people who are like flint and immovable. And so there are some people who need a soft word, and there are some people who need a hard word. And Paul says, Timothy, make sure that you are not averse to giving a hard word when necessary, to giving a charge to these people. See, Timothy has this guarding role. He's like a guardian. He's like a guard dog. Uh, He is supposed to play that role in, in Ephesus. And that's connected with his teaching. It's connected with his instruction. He, he oversees the teaching that takes place in Ephesus, and he makes sure that error doesn't rear its ugly head. Uh, a couple of things I might say in this regard. Um, this is part of the reason why it's important for Christian education material that, that we teach at Evergreen. We make sure that it's overseen by the Christian Education Committee, and the Christian Education Committee is overseen by the session. And the reason why we want to make sure that we know all the things that are being taught at Evergreen is because ultimately the elders of the local church are responsible to oversee and know what's being taught in the local church. Um, that's one of the ways that we, that we put this into practice. That's one of the ways that we are careful about what is taught and what's commanded in the church. Um, this charge that, that Paul speaks of to Timothy reminds us also the work of the church is not exclusively emotional. It's not exclusively related to our, to our feelings. It's also tied to having true beliefs. It's tied to having right beliefs. Um, you will see this in this letter that Paul puts a very high premium on sound teaching, on true teaching. Uh, Timothy Uh, has this task of making sure the truth is being taught and that errors are being responded to. Um, This is a very cliche thing for Presbyterians because we have a little bit of a reputation, uh, Presbyterians do. We have this reputation as truth people. We care a lot about truth, and we're also known sometimes for running a little roughshod over people's emotions. Um, So sometimes I pull back from this kind of thing. I think, well, we don't need to say this again. You know, we've already got a reputation for being eggheads um, very focused on doing things decently and in good order. This is our, what we're known for. 
Uh, but this also needs to be taught, right? Because this is a deeply Pauline concern. Paul is concerned about this. He says, if we teach what is false, then what we believe about God and what we love about God, and yes, what we feel about God, is not going to be founded on what's true. And that means that our Christian life will end up being formed around an idol of our own making. We will be guilty of idolatry if we allow of all of the, the, the formation of our Christian identity and life around falsehoods. So that's why he's so, he's, he's so, he presses so hard on this issue of truth because all of the feelings and emotions and uh, affections that Christians are supposed to have are meant to be based on, grounded in the truth, and grow out of that. So you make sure that the root is healthy because what grows out of that, the flower that comes forth from it, it is gonna, it's going to reflect whatever started there to begin with. So you make sure that the truth is at the foundation and everything else grows out of it. And that means that we make sure that we teach the truth. That's how God safeguards the church. So this is the, the first point. It's Timothy's ministry. His ministry, remain in Ephesus and charge false teachers not to spread their falsehoods. A second this morning, Paul explains for us Timothy's mission. Uh, he tells us Timothy is supposed to charge false teachers in this way. Here's what he says. Not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Uh, before we dig into the specifics here, keep something in mind. These directions are given to Timothy, but the content of the charge is something for all church members. Um, let's break this down into pieces. First, he says, not to teach any different doctrine. Um, consider this, Paul and Timothy have been teaching doctrine. So he's saying not to teach different doctrine, which means they've been teaching doctrine. Uh, doctrine is another word for teaching, right? We have different names for different categories of, of doctrines traditionally in the church. We have the doctrine of God. We have the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of the Spirit, the doctrine of the church, doctrine of worship, doctrine of the last things. Um, the list goes on. Uh, doctrine is one of these words that we have different personalities here in the church. And I suspect you know what's going on inside of you right now when you heard the word doctrine. Some of you heard the word doctrine and your soul just soared. I can't believe it. I love doctrine. He's talking about doctrine. And then some of you are like, that's not my favorite thing. I can't wait till we get to the, the later in the sermon or something. <laughs> There's different personalities in the church. Some people really gravitate towards that and some people don't. Uh, I, I want to make the case to you that you should get more excited about doctrine. Uh, I, I want your soul to sing when you hear about doctrine. Because look, Paul is, Paul is telling Timothy that that's been the whole substance of their ministry here. That's what they've been doing. They've been teaching doctrines to people such that there's a such thing as different doctrine. That they know what Paul has not been teaching. And he's like, make sure that you don't go against the things we've already been saying and laying the groundwork for. Um, think about how important doctrine is in a, in a Roman culture, right? In America, 2021, we live in an interesting moment, right, where um, the, culture, the culture, I would say, through the 80s and 90s was kind of indifferent to Christianity. And Christianity is tolerated. It's 
sort of accepted. It's fine. Uh, there's this strong Christian subculture that everybody sort of has. You know, you've still got contemporary Christian music. You know, you've got your own. Christians have their own things. Um, so church is sort of, you can think of it as church neutral. For years, America was church positive, right? You should be going to church. If you want to get into elected office, go to church. Uh, make sure that you, you have some connection. Make sure your name's on the roll at least somewhere, right? Or you'll never get into the, the presidency or become a governor. And then you hit the, maybe the 80s and 90s, and it becomes church neutral. Even the 2000s, really. What happens when, with the culture that's church neutral? People are indifferent about, about church. They see it as an option. They see it as a lifestyle choice. They see it sort of like getting a tattoo. Hey, you're that kind of person. Okay, you're one of those church people. Okay. You're not going to be harassed necessarily, but at the same time, there is this movement towards that. Now we live in a church negative culture. Now we live in a church, uh, a culture that, that looks at the church and says, this is not good. Why are you going there? You're part of the problem. Right? That's the moment that we sort of live in. Uh, and so in the Roman culture, very church negative culture, if, it's, if people even have an opinion of the church. But they live in this moment where there are so many religions, where there are so many ideas about God, where there's so many ideas about the universe that Paul really does need to get in there and say things as, as basic as there's only one God. That's, that's an oppositional thing for him to say in first century Roman culture. He goes to Ephesus and he says, you see that temple over there that's dedicated to the emperor? That's bad. Why is it bad? And he gives them doctrine. He gives them explanations and understandings. We're entering a moment where cultural Christianity won't be enough to sustain you. You are going to need doctrines and teachings and things that are going to be able to hold you up when everyone around you is looking at you and going, you're one of the bad people. We need to, be, we need to have stronger foundations than just our feelings. We need doctrine. And Timothy's writing, or Paul's writing to Timothy in this time when they need doctrine. Because it turns out Christianity is a teaching religion. It's a bookish religion where Christianity spreads. People are reading. People are producing books. People are writing books. People are writing letters. This is just sort of the orientation of Christianity. So you have this, this Christianity as it's spread, doctrine is spread. Uh, a Christianity without doctrine is a Christianity, Christianity without content. It's sort of like a person without a head. Um, it's, a, it's a religion without a reason. Uh, it becomes utter nonsense. The reason we don't have to focus on doctrine or can get away with not focusing on doctrine is because we're inheriting something and it's not been challenged. But as soon as it gets challenged, we really find out how much we need doctrine. Um, and by the way, everyone teaches doctrine. The, the question is, is it good doctrine or is it bad doctrine? Is it robust doctrine or is it weak doctrine? Um, we don't get to choose whether we're doctrinal people. It, it's going to be a part of us no matter what. So is it going to be watery or is it going to be rich? So that gets us to the second part of what he says, though. He says, don't teach different doctrine. So before he says, I'm teach I was teaching doctrine to you. That's the substance of what, of what I was doing. And now he says, make sure we don't go against that. Make sure we don't have different doctrine. In other words, what Paul doesn't want is original thinking. <laughs> at least when it comes to teaching others about God. 
at least when it comes to, to, to teaching the things that God has given in his word. He wants them to take the things they've already been taught and he wants them to live there and be satisfied with that. Um, take the gospel of Christ, take the teachings of scripture, take the exposition of God's word and make that the basis of everything they do and say. This is how you ensure that you don't teach something that is different. One of my favorite quotes, and I hate this so much uh, that I can't remember exactly where it came from. It was from a seminary professor whose name has long escaped me. But he said something along these lines. He said, if I have done my job well, I will never have taught anything original. I mean, it doesn't sound like a, like, like a great selling point when you get up and you say it that way. But he says, I don't want to say anything original. He says, I don't want to say anything that God's people haven't already been teaching and explaining from the Bible. He said, I want to explain to you why the old things are true and why they still matter today. That is my job. New application, but no new inventions and no new ideas. No different doctrine. He's basically repeating what Paul is saying to Timothy. Paul mentions the sort of random things that can send a Christian off in strange directions. He mentions people who devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. You know, whatever these myths and genealogies are, they are a massive distraction. They're a massive distraction, and Paul thinks that this is actually worth addressing. He's, he's heard enough stories either from Timothy or from other people in Ephesus, or he's seen it in other churches where these people, um, well, it says that they do, he, he says that they devote themselves. That's the, the verb that he uses. They devote themselves to these weird ideas. Um, devotion, it's like wholehearted commitment. It's set-apartness. Um, these folks are really giving their time. They're really giving their attention to these weird speculative ideas. Myth refers to legends, things that aren't true that maybe people like to talk about. Um, maybe they're stories, maybe they're legends. They're not based on God's word. It might be a term for people who sort of speculatively interpret the law of Moses. That might be what Timothy's dealing with. Uh, the genealogies are spoken of by Paul here as being endless. They go forever. Um, it's kind of a funny word. He sounds a little bit sick of, of things, you know. <laughs> endless. They never stop. There is potentially no end to these people talking about genealogies. He is so sick of genealogies. Family trees. Uh, things that just go on and on forever. Probably what you're, what you're looking at is people who want to be able to say, I am a direct descendant of X. I'm a direct descendant of Hezekiah. I'm a direct descendant of so-and-so. And so they want higher positions in the church. Some people want to be seen as higher than others, greater than others. This could be what it is. Um, people who pick apart the Old Testament and they, they look for weird, obscure things and then they try to build this whole system off of them. What's the charge? He says, don't teach any different doctrine. Don't devote yourselves to pointless and speculative theological issues. Stick with the text and teachings of God's word. Stick with the things we've been teaching you. This isn't just for Timothy. This is for all of us. We can all go off the deep end. Paul is very concerned that we not go off the deep end, not move into the weird territory, <laughs> uh, the, the twilight zone. We, he doesn't want us to go there. Stay away from that. Um, I have seen it. I, I, and I would suspect that you have seen it too, right? People who 
they just become imbalanced. Somehow they got themselves fixated maybe on one topic that they, that they care about more than anything else. Uh, it maybe it has some connection with the Bible, but eventually they want to dig in so deep that they go beyond the text of Scripture and they just can't move on. Um, one of the things, I don't know if you know this about being a pastor, but um, I will tell you one of the weird things that I don't really share with very many people is that you... You get sent weird stuff by people, and they think that you're going to really be interested in it because you're a pastor. Um, Just so many flyers telling you about somebody's idea. It's usually something related to the end times. You know... (laughs) Uh, I once was sent a book by a man. He self-published a book. He wanted me to endorse his book. And it was a self-published book. It was over 400 pages long. And it explained in incredible convoluted depth his view of the book of Revelation. And you you just go through the book. And I did look at it. And so many charts. You've never seen a book with more charts. You've seen books on economics that had less charts than this book had in it. Um, very little Bible exposition, lots of pictures from current events, lots of pictures of tanks and helicopters, um, photos of the Pope and Barack Obama, like on every other page. So many charts. Have I mentioned the charts? Uh, it actually wasn't a 400 page book. It was probably 30 pages and just had a lot of pictures. Um, I cannot imagine the hundreds of hours this man devoted to writing this self-published book and maybe a dozen people or less would end up reading it. And I'm not sure anyone cared about these issues as much as he did. Uh, I've received visitors at the church, this is true, uh, who wanted to tell me that our, our church, not here in Mississippi, uh, wanted to tell me that our church was an antichrist. I thought, oh my goodness, what do you know about this church? <laughs> Well, he said he noticed that there was an organ in the room and he noticed that there was a piano when he came in through the front entryway and he said that the instruments made our church a false church. Um, Psalms are filled with stringed instruments, but let's forget about that. He, he was dead serious that the instruments made us a false church. Um, I've spoken with people who just became fixated, just utterly fixated on only one issue, only one thing they ever wanted to talk about. And whenever they would see me, they would want to talk about this one thing. And over the years, I started to realize there is only one thing in this world that this person cares about. And it is this one strange niche issue. And there's an incredible spiritual imbalance to someone's life when they do that. Speculation is a word that Paul uses here for this thing that is destructive to the faith. Speculation is when we ask a question that God has not given us an answer to, and then we decide to guess at what the answer could be, and then we decide to say that it is so. It's easier to do than we might think. I'm not a problem, I think, if we treat it with humility and we say, hey, this is just a guess, and then we humbly state that all I'm doing is guessing. But speculation is what happens when we guess at something and then we treat it like it is. Maybe because it makes sense to us in some way. We think it's internally coherent, maybe. This could make sense if only there was a verse that said so. 
Some of the biggest problems in church history happened because someone raised a problem. Someone desired an answer. And when they didn't find the answer in God's revealed word, they decided to work out the answer for themselves in a way that made sense to them. Not long ago, I had somebody tell me that they had figured out how the incarnation was possible. And he said, he, he wanted me to know, I spent years on this issue. I spent years working this out. I've thought this through so thoroughly. I can't believe no one else in the church has thought about the incarnation. I've been reading multiple books on the incarnation. They add up to thousands of pages and I'm blown away by the amount of thought that the church has put into the incarnation. But... But this person told me they weren't sure why no one else in church history had figured the solution out. And then he proceeded to describe to me word for word the ancient Christian heresy of modalism. And he had figured this out. Sometimes the name for this is monarchianism. Um, This person thought that they had invented this solution to the incarnation. He said, I figured it out. I know how it all makes sense now. And when he did it, he stumbled upon a heresy. And when I told him, this is a heresy, I know exactly what it is. I can give you, you know, the page numbers where it was condemned by the church. He was so dedicated to the idea that he said, well, this is just proof that the church doesn't know what it's talking about. You see, this is a path that you can get on, right? Paul is warning about it. He's warning about getting going into a strange direction because you fixated on one thing. And you've decided that on your own, you're going to figure it out. and You're going to be special. Trying to figure out an answer to some obscure question without the aid of other Christians, divorced from the history of the church, with just your own raw human reason, leads to imbalance and obsession and speculations and errors rather than the stewardship from God. I'm starting to believe in my old age that that the, the holiest words that you can sometimes say are, I don't know, or the Bible doesn't say. That's a, been a great, that's a great answer to a lot of questions. I use it all the time. Um, Paul warns us that someone like this, if they're not careful, they may find themselves making what he calls confident assertions. That's what he calls them in the text. Confident assertions when they really do not understand what they are saying. I mean, these are, these are phrases directly out of the text. You can almost picture what Paul wants for this church and what he's tasked Timothy with helping guide them toward. What is, he, what is he imagining here? What is he hoping for in this church? He wants a balanced church that listens to God's word without innovation. A, a people who are devoted to God and obeying his word. A people who love Jesus Christ, not an imagined and speculated savior. A church that is willing to say, we don't know. When it comes to a question that God hasn't given the answer to. That's what Paul wants for Timothy. It's what he wants for the church in Ephesus. It's what he wants for all the churches. Christian, are you, being, are you willing to be satisfied with what God has said rather than what you wish that he had said? Will you commit not to go beyond God's word but instead be anchored to the truths of scripture? That's Timothy's mission. <clears throat> Third this morning, we have Timothy's motivation in verses 5 to 7. You know, it's not even just Timothy's motivation. It's the motivation Paul wants Timothy to cultivate in all the Christians in Ephesus. Here he is. He's on the ground. 
He's physically with these people. He's spending time with them. He's getting to know them. He's discipling people one-on-one. He's also ministering the word. But what is this motivation that's supposed to drive Timothy and that he wants Timothy to cultivate in this church? He says it in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So the speculations, the genealogies, the myths, they're, they're all abstract. They lead to endless controversy. They feed trouble. They never go away. They aren't based in truth. And there is a fruit that grows out of them as well. They cause never-ending conflict for the church. And they don't even have an application. <laughs> um, Christian teaching and doctrine, on the other hand has a very different motivation, a very different fruit that grows out of it when it's true and it's according to God's word. What does he say the aim of Christian teaching is? What are they working to produce in those who hear the teaching? Here it is. Love that issues from a pure heart. So there's this extremely practical outcome, this this tangible outcome that Paul expects to see in the lives of these saints. And that outcome is love. Something that you can see. Something that shows itself in action. Um, my wife is constantly uh, telling people that I sang at our wedding. And it is true. I sang, uh, I sang a Bob Dylan song to make you feel my love. But I did not sing it with the Bob Dylan voice. She's very glad. <laughs> I sang like the Billy Joel version. Um, And I remember just loving the song, and that's why I wanted to sing it at the wedding. But I remember John Miller, our pastor, getting up after I had sung that song. And he said, I am glad that you sang that song today because it is a song that is not about the emotion of love. It is about the actions that follow from it. The whole song is him listing off all these things he would do because of love. Love in action. Love that's actually moving and and alive and that isn't just sitting as an idea. And I um and I will just say this about the weird speculations that I have been subjected to over the years. Um the things that I've heard from people and the theorizing and myths, they have zero application and zero results. If you ask the person, what's the point of all of this? What, what would be the benefit of me finally figuring out that, that Barack Obama is the Antichrist and uh, finding out that, that there are tanks in the book of Revelation? What would that mean for me in my everyday life? And they say, well, well now you know. It's like, okay, so what you're saying is there's actually very little help to be gained, even if, if you were right about all of these things. These, there's no real application to be drawn from these weird speculations. And this goes on and on with the other issues that I've, that I've seen. There's no practicality, right? Um, they're, they're all mind games. They're all mental gymnastics. But there's not a real goal. It's just a weird obsessive theory. Sort of like chasing the mail truck that you never catch. On the other hand, look at the difference. Uh, look at what Paul is doing. Paul very closely ties love in verse 5 and truth in verse 3. He says, charge these people not to teach different doctrine other than the truth. Why? Because we're aiming at love. 
If you remove the parentheticals, that's basically the argument that he's making here. Because he says, all of this has a point. All of this has a message. Truth and love go hand in hand. They're not polar opposites of each other. They are complementary. When we embrace the truth, we're loving God's people. When we love God's people, we embrace the truth. And by extension then, to abandon truth is to, to, is to abandon love. It's actually unloving to abandon truth or to say, oh, well, because I love you, I'm going to set aside these truth claims. Or because I love you, I'm going to set aside this thing that God has said. There's no such thing as a sentence like that. That's not a, that's not a true statement at all. Um, that's what he says in verse 6. He says, these people have wandered away into vain discussions. They are vain because they have no aim. They have no point except to take the air out of the room and distract God's people and trouble the churches with nonsense. And in, in part, this teaches us something incredibly valuable. I hope you don't miss Um, And I've already hinted at it here. It is very easy for us to pit love and truth against each other. Um, You've seen this maybe where someone will say, you know, we're supposed to love each other. And you truth people are causing division or or you're keeping the church from experiencing unity. If If only you truth people would hold your horses and listen to us love people over here. And yet over and over again, the New Testament drives us toward the truth. And, and it sees the truth as a unifying principle. So as we come to the same knowledge of the same truth and the same Savior, what happens? We're drawn together in love and in truth and as a body of Christ. We're not repelled from each other. As we come to the same word and we come to the same understanding, we have unity. And, and, and truth is the way that that is done. It's the instrument that God uses to develop love in the church. Um, we, we can't separate love from truth, and we must not ever drive a wedge between them as if they are opposite ends of some sort of spectrum. We shouldn't be tricked into believing that to embrace or to highlight truth means compromising on love, or that compromising on love means, uh, means that we're going to be uh, developing uh, truth in the church. It's not true. Paul brings these three ideas together, right? He, he has this, he mentions a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. He says, that's what we're aiming at. Uh, but I want you to see this very clearly. These are all things that we only ever know in Christ. I want you to remember that. Love is at the heart of God's commands. Jesus came in love. Purity of heart, Paul mentions purity of heart. Purity of heart is more important than external acts of obedience. Jesus is so clear about this. This is what we've been looking at in Matthew. As we were going through Matthew every single time, Jesus is saying, hey, don't listen to those people who are just fixated on external obedience. Love God from the heart. Love one another from the heart. Don't just not commit adultery, but don't hate. Don't just... uh, Sorry, don't just not commit adultery, but have a chaste heart. He says, don't just not murder, but he says, don't even hate. He keeps getting underneath of the sin. Purity of heart. That's what Jesus is encouraging us with. And Paul does the same thing here. Jesus is so clear about this. Not only did he preach it, but he lived it. And he showed us what a pure life looks like. Paul then mentions heartfelt sincerity. Without heartfelt sincerity, we can't please God. 
And each of these three things that we preach, Paul says, is something that is found first in Jesus himself. The biblical gospel is centered on Christ. It is drawn from God's self-revelation. And it's aimed at building up the body of Christ. So as elders, we're given these things as a goal. We're given these things as a target. We're told, turn the body of Christ in this way. Direct God's people in this way. But then as Christians, we're all driven by these goals so that we set our eyes on Jesus himself. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is tempting to become so busy with dissecting your word that we can forget why you have saved us. To glorify you, to live for Jesus, to love Jesus, and to love others. Help us not to take our eyes off of, of Christ. Help us not to neglect your word. And help us never to believe the lie that to embrace the truth is to reject love. It is not true, O oh God. Protect us from believing the lie. Keep us people of truth and people of love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>